Hello, and welcome to Trek in Time, the podcast that takes a look at Star Trek in order and in history. What I mean by that, we're going to talk about each episode of Star Trek in chronological order, and we're also going to take a look at the things that were going on at the time of the original broadcast. We're going to be taking a deeper dive into the episodes or the era they were broadcast in that catch our eye. And of course, you're probably now wondering, whose eyes am I talking about? First, my eyes. I'm Sean Farrell. I'm a writer. And some of my books include sci-fi, such as Man in the Empty Suit. And with me is my brother, Matthew. He's the tech guru and, and inquisitor behind the YouTube channel Undecided with Matt Farrell, which takes a look at emerging, emerging tech and its impact on our lives. So today, welcome. It's episode one. How are you, Matt? I'm doing good. How are you doing? I'm good. I was surprised when I recalled that the episode we're going to be talking about today, which is the very first of the series Enterprise, was a two-parter. So yeah. I don't know why yeah. I didn't remember that. Maybe it's the fact that it was 20 years ago. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Makes me feel old. <laughs> 20 years so as I said, we're taking a look at Star Trek in chronological order. So this is not the original series. This is not Next Generation. It's not even Deep Space Nine. This is going back to Enterprise, which takes place in the eras that are just about 100 years away from where we are now. But this episode, which landed on September 26, 2001 landed in a very different world than it might have expected. What was the world that it landed in? Well, first, one of the big hits of the day was Alicia Keys' Fallen. And as we just mentioned, 20 years is a long time. It is astounding to me that Alicia Keys has been the name that she is for 20 years. I still think of her as a more recent arrival. Maybe that's yeah, just a sign of how old I am. But when I saw that she had a number one hit at that time, I did a double take. But even more than that, the number one movie at the time was, yes, it was the Keanu Reeves classic Hardball. <laughs> a movie I don't remember at all. <laughs> this is a movie that when I read about it, I thought, okay, this is from an alternate timeline. Because there's no way this movie exists. <laughs> Hardball, the story of an aimless young man who is scalping tickets, gambling, and drinking, agreeing to coach a little league team from the Cabrini Greenhouse, Greenhouse Project in Chicago as a condition of getting a loan from a friend. I have no memory of this movie. I saw <laughs> pictures of the movie poster. It is Keanu Reeves. Yes. It exists. It's a real thing. Yes. But no recollection. And why would why I have no recollection of all of this? You may be asking yourself, well, it was September 26, 2001. So yeah. basically two weeks prior to this movie being released and becoming the number one hit, we Good had show. September 11th, which is why the New York Times headlines at the time of this show being aired included the headlines, Bush steps up appeal to Afghans to rid their country of Taliban. The FBI says 20 in custody sought to transport hazardous materials. And there was, at the time, 
a ban on lone drivers at some New York state sites. All of these things were responses to the attack at the World Trade Center on September 11th, which makes the emergence of this show very strange indeed to go back and rewatch this now, knowing what had happened just two weeks prior to its airing. It really was like looking through a window into a very different era. Yeah. For me, at least. Oh, me too. The show is based on hope and optimism and progress. And in the real world, we had just entered what was clearly a terrifying new era. Yeah. And it's a little hard to recall the details of the show as I was watching it. It was as if I was watching it for the very first time, because at the time that I would have watched it, you were in a different headspace. <laughs> I was in a very different headspace and I needed to not face what was going on around. Yeah. I, for the listeners out there, I'm, I live in New York city. I've lived here for a long time. I, on September 11th was able to get a, uh, through AIM Instant Messenger, I was able to get a message to Matthew, who lived in Boston, to let him know that I was safe and was going to be heading home and would contact family as soon as possible. But there was no way for me to reach anybody. And on September 11th, I worked in Midtown in Manhattan and ended up having to walk partway down Manhattan to find a working subway station. And then made my way home to Brooklyn. And for the next several days, debris, including calendar pages and memos, rained down on our neighborhood as the material that had gone up into the air when the towers went down fell on my neighborhood. And New York City, for a long time after that, felt like it was under an emotional and a physical lockdown that was very hard to, to manage and seeing this show start right off the bat with such an optimistic vision mm -hmm. of what the world was like. I recall watching the series when it was on the air, but the details of it, I think I couldn't take them in. So yeah, yeah, very, very different era. So now let's get into what the show's details are. Matt, do you want to give us a synopsis of the episode Broken Bow? Sure. Well, Broken Bow is a two-part pilot episode of the science fiction series Enterprise. It was originally aired as a double-length episode and released as just that, but it was split into two segments for syndication. A novelization of the episode was written by Diane Carey which was published in 2001, and the episode won the 2002 Emmy Award for Outstanding Special Visual Effects for a series and was also nominated for sound editing and makeup. It, it's a in the nine decades since, uh, Zephyrum Cochran produced Human's first warp flight as seen in the Star Trek First Contact movie, and Earth finally launches its first starship of ex exploration, the Enterprise NX-01, committed by Captain Jonathan Archer, and against the objections of the Vulcans, it departs on its urgent first mission to return an injured Klingon to um, 
I'm blanking on the name of the homeworld. Kronos. <laughs> Kronos. Kronos. Yes. The Klingon homeworld. So that's the synopsis of the uh, the episode, which was, as you said, I completely forgot this was two parts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so taking a look at the episode, the the ins and outs of the story, it's a classic story of the basically the 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 child who wants to step out from the parents shadow is yep. how they, they clearly they they structured the story around the Zephram Cochran story in first contact was had already been seen so you saw humanity in a rebuilding period at that point where there was still conflict going on from a world that was dealing with conflict and the building of a solid single vision of humanity had taken place over the the decades between first contact and the series and that had been taking place under the tutelage and guidance of the vulcans but it is framed very clearly from the very beginning of the series as the vulcans are reluctant to offer any kind of help they're effectively i think following a prime directive the tone that is set up is one of humanity ch um chomping at the bit yeah trying to get out there and do its thing and tired of being held back and i think that for me some of the things that worked were the introduction of a major not conflict, but story arc to the, the series was going to be the idea of a temporal cold war that was taking place in the background. And I'm of two minds with this on the one, I love a good time travel time element to yeah. sci-fi. That is something that I mentioned my book that I've published in the past, which is man in the empty suit. It's a time travel story. It's about a time traveler. Um, so I'm always on board for a good time travel story. It is a very dangerous storytelling yes. device though. And I think that right out of the gate, the show is to me, as I was watching this episode, I thought, Oh, it's so obvious they're playing with fire. And they're getting a little burnt by it. Mm -hmm. The The introduction of a temporal Cold War is a really cool story idea. And it has so much to it that could turn into some great storytelling opportunities. But immediately they are stumbling over some elements, I think. Like why are the details of what should be history to somebody in the mm -hmm. future so up in the air what how they i felt like they needed they hint at the idea that the time travel or the time element is maybe a pocket that is seeing multiple timelines potentially unweaving and weaving around it mm -hmm. and so that there may not be a direct oh we know facts because we know the future as much as we know potentials because we are in a future. Right. I think there may have, it may have benefited from a little bit more detail 
in that way, because to me, it felt a little bit like somebody holding cards and hiding them too close to their chest and not being willing to share more of their hand because I didn't get how the time travel worked. Like yeah, I were, liked it as a story element. They were clearly holding it back to dole out in future episodes. Um, but I agree with you. It's like they held back a few too many cards. So there was a little too many question marks in my head as well as we're watching it. Cause like it's a standard crutch uh, to use time travel to kind of retcon whatever you want. And so when time travel becomes a key point of, oh, this show is going to be all about time travel. Oh, oh boy. Are they going to rewrite all of Star Trek history? Um, we'll be getting to this later, but the whole J.J. Abrams Star Trek mm-hmm. <laughs> did exactly that, um, which you could look at as a cheat. So there was con- there's watching this specific episode. There's that. I remember when I watched it when it was brand new that that was a concern in the back of my head of, uh oh. Are they going to be trying to change the direction of all of Star Trek by doing what they're doing in a way that's going to damage the view of all the previous shows that came before? Um, So obviously can't answer that based on this one episode, but those were concerns. Like you said, you're playing with fire and the fact that they weren't showing more of their cards to kind of reassure us what they were kind of planning on doing with the rules um, was concerning to me. I also felt like there was a bit of, it's a bit of a cheat because we've got this new cast of characters. We've got a new crew. We come in and we sit down and we sit down to watch this. If you had never seen Star Trek, yeah. if this was your very first experience, you're going to see a bunch of people chomping at the bit to go out and have their moment of being able to touch the stars and another species saying, we don't think you're ready yet. And then there's this temporal cold war element. Mm -hmm. If this is your very first entry into the star Trek universe, you don't know any of what they're hinting at. Yeah. You don't understand what any of that matters for because from your experience, and this is similar to what captain Archer's experience would be in this moment. Captain Archer, of course, played by Scott Bakula. It would be, well, what is the danger? The future is unwritten for me. So whatever experience I have is my experience. This is my era. None of that really matters. Right. And then the alternate way of viewing this is you do know Star Trek. You did watch the other series. You come into this. It is inviting you to care about these new characters, not for what they are and what they can be, but how good a job they do at protecting everything you just described, the legacy of the original series and the legacy of the other shows. So it felt a little bit like this was standing in between two camps and not picking one camp or the other. Yes. I wanted it to either be fully in the let's care about these characters Mm -hmm. and their challenge because it's their challenge in front of them. Or let's defend the future by having somebody in the show, one of the protagonists needed to know what the future held, whatever that might be, however that might be achieved. Mm -hmm. A time traveler from the future coming back and saying, you've got to help me protect everything. 
this felt a little bit like watching back to the future if marty never traveled backward in time and you were just watching will marty's dad and his mom get together there's no understanding of the stakes if doc brown was the only one to travel back in time yeah and he doesn't care about them yeah why do we care about them yeah so this this kind of felt like it had that that level of the gears were missing and ultimately this is a pilot and so it has that you know there's going to be some gear slippage in a pilot because up to a certain point it's all based on a story bible they don't quite know who these people are yet yeah so i included the temporal cold war as an element that i thought worked even though i've just deconstructed it in a way that sounds very critical yeah i think that i included it in what worked because i think as a storytelling element and something to build a show on i think is a very very challenging and strong story arc and i think that it's so that's one of the reasons why i thought it worked and i also another element that i thought worked was they can created a set of characters the the level of experience that um that brandon braga and and brennan had when they put this together was up to this point the number of crews that they had put together had been there's next generation and then deep space nine and voyager they could have fallen into a trap of cookie cutter yeah you know character elements i feel like any star trek show is going to have a hint of that you and that's the nature of a crew mm -hmm. you have to have a captain a first officer a science officer an engineer these things are all logically things that make sense but they managed to right off the bat there were a number of scenes that i felt like they did a really great job of letting the characters reveal themselves instead of it being i've seen other shows i know you've seen other shows where two people sit in a room and they're looking at a list of names and like so who are you taking on this adventure and somebody literally lists the qualifications of various yeah. people yes instead of having scenes with those people and the things that i thought worked were archer's scene with his communications officer who's the yeah. translation expert and him trying to convince her like you've got to come with me now you get one shot at this right now if you don't come with me i can't take you um and the way very he natural and the way he teases why don't you want to come with me and he just plays the recording of the the language and she's yes. just like "Ooh, what is that her so first exposure great, to cling on and a great tease yeah yeah it's a good it's a good tease and it's another scene that i really enjoyed was between the the pilot and the engineer when they show the yeah. pilot has found the gravitational spot in the ship where gravity is inverted and he is a he as a young man as a kid grew up on spaceships he he didn't grow up on a planet as a home and he's depicted very um there's a certain Chekhov quality to him. He's played yeah. as one of the younger characters. He's played as a little inexperienced, but he's also got a sort of naivete that almost seemed alien, but he's human. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was a very well structured character, that sort of alien aspect to him. 
and then there's of course there has to be an alien in the crew somewhere so they've they've the immediately introduced the doctor who is on basically a doctor exchange program again an interesting way of getting that alien presence and i thought that it was a very nice touch that his version of medicine seems more homeopathic yeah. and more inclined toward natural remedy even though it might be something like here's a leech from another planet that helps mend bone yeah it's like you know putting this yeah. on a wound helps clean and, and begin the healing process i thought that that was a, a nice touch i also like the way that they introduced his character because like you said it's like sitting down and looking through a sheet of like i'm picking so and so who's got these qualifications it's like you see this doctor in action trying to help the klingon and the captain recognizes his value just from what he did and we as an audience saw him do and so when he offers he says i want you to stay on as my doctor it's like that olive branch of wanting him to be included makes perfect sense because we've watched him do that along the way and it makes sense why he was included without some kind of exposition dump mm -hmm. <laughs> to like who is this guy why is yeah. he with us it's like we got to see it and that was i thought a nice little touch of of more experienced writers um I thought that was nice. Yeah. And before we jump off into what we think didn't work, I would just like to say that for me, one of the, the biggest moment in this entire two-parter was the final scene between the character to Paul, who's a Vulcan who accompanies the crew and she accompanies reluctantly and they reluctantly take her along mm -hmm. during this storyline the final scene between her and archer where you get the very first hint that they are going to be able to build a relationship that includes trust mm -hmm. because in that scene he reveals to her there's no way that i can do this without you but for us to do this it can't be humanity looking to you for help you need to give me an olive branch here and mm -hmm. she goes with the story of i will request permission to stay with you so that it will be us looking to help you as opposed to you looking for our guidance right and for me that scene was the first scene that actually felt like a star trek moment of yes. the pairing of two characters where it's ultimately about trust and bonds between crew members who are on some level both understanding i can't do this by myself and i'm afraid but you make me feel safe and th that kind of relationship has to be had within uh the, the stories of of star trek that's ultimately the the message is we're stronger as a as a group than we are individually so to see that moment finally be had i think at the very end of the second episode um that was the moment where i was just like ah yes and now it's star trek all the visuals I, I, aside that was yeah. the moment for me that yeah. it became star trek i was i would agree with you on that completely another thing i would want to add to the things i liked sci-fi concept wise i really like the suliban ships and the technology that they use like the whole helix it's a it's the giant ship so, is a bunch sort of, of modular thinking yeah it's like it's like i love there was a lot of uniqueness like star trek has been around for how long at this point and it's like they've touched on pretty much everything at this point what 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 new can you bring to us the whole way that the 
the, the temporal communication system works in that room with the the multi like they, they see themselves in many forms like the trails and mm-hmm. that whole fight sequence is very unique and interesting playing with temporal mechanics and then the whole helix structure ships i was like it there's a lot of new in here that you haven't seen in star trek before when you talk to just talk hard sci-fi kind of stuff that's happening so on that regard i think they did some cool stuff there yeah and it's and it's impressive that you're talking about something that is supposed to predate the original series and next generation sure. and there was there were elements in there that seemed more advanced it's yes it's the idea of, of advancements and and the the main villains in this one the Sulaban, are technologically advancing themselves they're forcing themselves to genetically be enhanced and so that's something that we hadn't really seen in other series yet um the borg of course doing it in a technological perspective but this was they're actually enhancing their bodies so that they can chameleon like mimic their environment turning themselves effectively invisible or they can see a spectrum of color that isn't available to their light to their eyes naturally things like that that give them effectively super superpowers yep um and that hadn't been seen before in a major character that would be a recurring character but then of course there are things that don't work yeah. matt you want to jump off into any of the things that you thought were um not so fantastic the, the one and i think there's one scene in particular that i know we're both thinking of what i'm about to say is that you're gonna go yep there you go on the nose uh there's a scene in the show where you, where you talk about that final scene which was okay this is star trek there was one scene that was wow this is so not star trek what is happening right now this feels like i'm going into uh a cinemax late night special here which was the to paul and trip come back from the planet and they are contaminated with something they have something on them that has to be treated cool science fiction concept because it's an old ship old technologies they have to go into a decon chamber before they can come in the ship but they have to spread gel on their bodies that will be like with you know irradiated and something that will kill all the bacteria that's on them uh this shower gel scene between T'Pol and Trip where they tight close-ups of rubbing gel into each other's bodies and the glistening glitter and the very sensual nature of the whole thing it was literally just... literally moving each other's underwear out of the way to be oh, able to apply <laughs> it was so gratuitous and just I I can't believe that the people that are so that, that that made this show that are versed in Star Trek and have a history of writing and producing Star Trek that they created that scene on their own. It felt like it was somebody from CW or whatever. The, I, can't, I think it was CW that did this show um, was like, we need to get some sex because sex sells. And we I have think to it would have been the, UPN, wouldn't it? Yeah, it was UPN. It was like, yeah. it felt like there was kind of probably a mandate to like sex up Star Trek. Yeah. And so this was them trying it to sex It sounded very much Star like Trek. the network showing up and saying, we've looked at the numbers and any show on the network that has at least this much skin gets this many viewers. Yes. So and put yeah. something in there. And it was like, and they were also trying to, they're trying to lay the groundwork that there's going to be something between Trip and T'Pol because, oh, look at this sexy shower, sour sheen scene. They, they belong together. 
watch them rub each other. It was really yeah. that scene should have been excised from the show. <laughs> it should have yeah. just been on the cutting room floor. It's awful, eye rolling. I remember watching it when it was live and like doing a blah, 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 like double yeah. take. And my wife turning to me as we were watching it going, what is happening? What is happening right now? What is happening? Make this stop because it yeah. goes on for a good like minute. It's a very long scene. It is. It is extremely dated. Yeah. And it is uncomfortable to watch. And I, it was uncomfortable for me to watch now. And I watched it completely alone. I was, <laughs> <laughs> And I had the same response with like, this is so not star trek this is so not it and it's fine if star trek has a moment of intimacy and romance and uh, that's part of good storytelling but this was you could have cut these scenes out and put them in any uh tna movie from cinemax and yeah. it would have fit in just as well. It, it had nothing to do with the context. It had nothing to do with the characters other than the fact that they were having what was supposed to be a very dry conversation about yeah. the context of the adventure that they were currently on, um, which made it even more awkward because it was like they were trying to have a somewhat heated business conversation. They have a disagreement yeah. And while they're having that disagreement, they're also caressing one another's bodies. And I'm sorry, it just didn't work. No. Another element that I thought was something that stood out for me was there were a number of times where women were in distress and needed men to swing in on a rope and save them. Yeah. And it was a recurring element. Basically, every female character had to be saved at various moments. Anytime their shooting started, the women were usually unarmed. There was one moment where I, I can recall that a woman was actually firing back. Um, most of the time, the women were being protected, being shuttled by men and being sent by men to like, you get to safety while I do the heroic thing. And mm -hmm. that stood out to me as being very, very dated. Um, and then there was also... For me, one of the things that stood out as not working was the kind of petulant nature of humanity at this point. Yes. Um, I think by the end of the series, one of the things that stood out as a, as a larger element of what they were going for was some recognition on the part of the humans in the show to say, oh, we thought we were ready but this is a lot more dangerous than we anticipated. Mm -hmm. And that's a great starting point for a series. You know, the, I know I'm ready. I'm ready. Stop telling me what to do. I'm ready. Oh my God. I don't know if I'm ready. That's a good starting point for a series to go from. But the initial conversations and the way the humans react to the presence of the Vulcans and the tutelage of the Vulcans and the Vulcans unwillingness to just hand stuff over and give all this help to humans so they can rush off into, into space. A lot of it came across as petulance. Yes. And to me, it didn't, it didn't quite ring true. It, it to me rang a little bit of of weakness in the writing as opposed to there are currently around the world right now there are different societies that operate at different levels of 
independence, uh, technological standpoint, economic standpoint, advances in medicine, what have you. Mm -hmm. I don't think if you went into the government centers and the cultural centers in a place that might not be as advanced as say the U S or different parts of the world, if you went to those other regions, which are living in a different, maybe more rustic setting, I don't think you're going to hear petulance toward the West. You may hear anger, dissatisfaction. Yeah. But this seemed almost teenager-like. Whiny. It was very whiny. Whiny, yes. And I would have appreciated a little more nuance in the writing and maybe in the acting to convey not a sense of impatience. And I think Scott Bakula in particular was trying to hammer down on uh, an anger aspect. Mm -hmm. And the writing was strong enough with his character that it was about the impatience having to do with a very personal moment for his character. His father died before he could see his work come to fruition mm -hmm. and seeing who he thought were the people who stood in the way of it coming to fruition. But there was just something about the other characters in the room, the other members of the crew. It all just kind of rang of we're sick and tired of you telling us what to do as opposed yeah. to, yeah, yeah, it was very, yeah. it, it just didn't, uh, didn't work for me. The, the, it's funny you bring up Scott Bakula because I mean, I've seen the entire series. So I know where his character ends up going and how his portrayal gets a little more nuanced as the show goes on. But Scott Bakula is not a, a new name. We know him from, you know, other shows and, He's a, he was a well-known actor and he's a well-respected actor. He's good. He's a good actor. Um, but my, I was remembering the first time I saw this episode, my impression of him was, I really don't like Scott Bakula because he comes across as so stiff and wooden in his performance that it looks like he's reading off of cue cards most of the time. And it looks like he's going through the paces like there was there was an aspect of the way he was performing that felt very perfunctory to me mm. and it didn't feel like there was an actual it was almost like i'm doing this because i'm getting a paycheck it, it didn't feel like a real character because we've seen him before in other shows with a very you know nuanced you know emotional performances and this was very wooden and standoffish and my initial impression of that when I first saw it 20 years ago was I don't think he's doing a very good job here, mm -hmm. but in time, you know, retrospectively looking back at it, I think he does a very good job. It's that's the character he's performing as it's not a, the wooden performance is not him. The wooden performance is the character. It's yeah. he's putting on a little bit of an air. He's trying, he's, it's just the way he is. And so it's like, it actually is a very good performance, but the first impression is it's not. And that was something to me that was, I don't know if you felt the same way, but if somebody is watching the show for the first time, I could totally see them not really thinking that much of his performance in the show. 
Yeah, and there were also some strange moments. There are some strange moments for him as a character. Like there's the scene where he is uh, doing a captain's log. Oh, yeah. And he keeps pausing it to give asides to his dog. And clearly those asides are intended for the audience to hear. Yes. But it seems so strange that he would be editing himself in that way. And I didn't understand why. And it and it really I think that he as an actor struggled with that because the way that it was performed made it seem even stranger. Yes. Uh, And like you said, this is an actor that was well known at this point on the very beloved show quantum leap, which I think still holds up as Mm -hmm. a fantastic sci-fi show. I mean, talk about time travel as a dangerous concept. Quantum leap is a, is a show that demonstrates that done right. You can do absolutely fantastic storytelling around a time travel element and bacula in that series was phenomenal He's and great. just absolutely brings so much humanity into so many different environments and the stories that were told the the writing and the acting on that just really merged together beautifully this pilot and again it's a pilot so yes Yes, I agree with you. Moving forward, we're going to see a different captain emerge over time. And I'm looking forward to that, especially considering uh, there have been some rumors that I've heard recently that Archer is going to be seen again in newer newer Star Trek stories, that there's going to be an emergence of him in something in the future. So I think I'd be all for that because... He, he grew on me very quickly in the show, but my initial impression was not positive. I remember 20 years ago. Yeah. Before we wrap up, I wanted to go on a deeper dive into one of the characters. I wanted to talk about T'Pol. T'Pol, who was portrayed by Jolene Blaylock, is the Vulcan who is assigned to the crew against the wishes of basically everybody. And as Matt and I mentioned earlier, there's a scene at the end of the episode in which she and Archer kind of get each other. And he asks for her help in having her be the one to ask for her right to stay aboard the Enterprise. Going a little deeper into the character, this is what I think is most interesting about her. And I remember when the show was on the horizon, I remember hearing that the Vulcan aboard the ship was going to be the character T'Pau. And of course, when the series started, it was T'Pol. So looking a little deeper into it, and this is from Memory Alpha, which is a website that goes deep into Star Trek lore. It describes the transition of the character in this way. Originally, the main character of T'Pol on Enterprise was intended to be a younger version of T'Pau. It was discussed as a possibility, remembered executive producer Rick Berman. Executive story editor Phyllis Strong added, it was hoped that we'd get a little kick out of it. In the series Bible for Enterprise, T'Pol was called T'Pau, and a special note to fans of the original Star Trek series suggested they were perhaps the same character. The note referred to the original T'Pau as a powerful ancient Vulcan. Here's where it gets interesting. They wanted to have the character of T'Pau. T'Pau is viewed as the Vulcan leader in various episodes in the future. Uh, She is a presence in the episode of the original series, A Mock Time, where she is portrayed as being potentially a, not only a leader, but is related to Spock in some way. 
But it gets interesting because they couldn't use Tapau as a name due to some legalities. Reusing the name Tapau for a regular character was difficult, as the creative staff realized. Strong commented, unfortunately, we couldn't get the rights to do that. It was prohibitively expensive. Apparently, the writer of the original episode in which Tapau was named had the right of control over the name of Tapau. Executive producer Brandon Braga more specifically explained in 2010, the Enterprise character's name was changed to avoid having to deal with the legal component of the original writer. Shortly after being cast as T'Pol on Star Trek, Enterprise actress Jolene Blaylock revealed a fondness for the character of T'Pau. There was something about her that I've always loved, commented Blaylock. It just made an impression on me. The introduction of the character on the original series influenced the portrayal of Vulcans on Enterprise, including how Blaylock played T'Pol. I think that one of the nuances in the portrayal of T'Pol is the undercurrent of there being a little bit more emotion mm-hmm. in the portrayal of the Vulcans and their distrust and on a certain level dislike of humans being mm-hmm. something that are barely able to hide. Yeah. So I appreciated that. Yeah, I agree. There was a little bit of a disdain, a distaste, like mm-hmm. they're slumming it by hanging around, yeah. around with us. Yeah. They're hanging out with riffraff. Yeah. Aren't we all? <laughs> <laughs> so next time on backtracking, we'll be talking about the third episode. If you count the first and second as the pilot. And that episode is titled Fight or Flight. Matt, do you have any predictions about what we'll be seeing on Fight or Flight? Based on the title alone. (laughs) They're going to fight or run away. (laughs) I think that that's probably pretty close. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. We hope you've enjoyed this look back through time at not only the episode, but the times that the episode dropped in. And we hope you'll join us again next time. If you have any comments, you can find our contact information in the podcast description. Or if you're watching this on YouTube, you can just drop down into the comments right below the video. We'll talk to you next time. Thanks so much for listening.